Oh, in the game, yo. Why would we do something like this? Show me the money. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Pathetic. I said pathetic? Desperate, pathetic. This is one of you, right? Right, are we talking about a sick guy? Why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? All right, Nate, it is bright and early in the morning here on the West Coast. I thought we should pop open those trades and talk about a few stories. You ready to go? Is I, I am. Is the brightness uh, the sun or burning wildfires? Uh, there. This is the... I'm 36 hours back into having power again after not having it for almost four days. So it was the goddamn Middle Ages here over the weekend, Nathan. And let me tell you that... Uh, when the biggest excitement of your life is having a backup battery pack just to charge your phone, which you can't use because you have no cell service to use any apps, your life is pretty destitute. Holy cow. I mean, that sounds that sounds terrible. By complete contrast, we're going to get four inches of snow here today in Chicago. So Awesome. Happy Halloween. <laughs> uh, let's dive into the trades. All right. Our first story per IGN, Netflix is reportedly testing a variable playback speed feature on its mobile apps, which will allow viewers to watch their favorite movies and television shows at a slower or faster rate. Right now, it's just being tested on Google's mobile operating system, Android, um, and it would potentially give um, viewers the ability to watch either much slower, like half speed or three quarter speed or go faster to you know one and a quarter or up to one and a half speed and of course these features have already been in place for years when it comes to podcasts and audiobooks but it is yet to really be uh, put into practice when it comes to the visual medium uh, one quick comment from a content producer from Netflix himself Judd Apatow the famous director writer who co-created Netflix's love series wrote on Twitter and I quote here Nathan no, Netflix, no. Don't make me have to call every director and show creator on earth to fight you on this. Save me the time. I will win, but it will take a ton of time. Don't fuck with our timing. We give you nice things. Leave them as they were intended to be seen. We give you nice things? They paid millions of dollars to these people. Sorry, the money's for the content. They own it. Uh, you know what they're saying in the boardroom? Go fuck yourself, Judd Apatow. That's what the money's like, for, as Don Draper would that's say. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Like, I'm sorry, but that's not how the world works. Like, you made this thing, presumably, uh, uh, to be seen by people, and then the people get to dictate how they want to watch it. Sorry. Like, if you gave it to the audience. You didn't give it to Netflix. You sold it to Netflix. Right. I mean, um, there, there's nothing that can stop ahead. people from, you know... Uh, muting their Wizard of Oz and playing Dark Side of the Moon at the same time, right? That's not how the original uh, filmmakers intended the movie to be shown. But once the content is yours, you can do whatever you want with it. Exactly right. And, and you know, I doubt very much they want these things to be watched on phones, but that's the reality of where we are, right? Like that the consumer is dictating uh, a significant amount of how they consume the content they watch. And so I, I don't, this feels like whining. It feels like out of touchness. It feels like, okay, give the money back then. Yeah, um, totally. And it ties into a little bit this larger issue I'm seeing of these people who are essentially corporate employees, you know, Apatow and big name comedians, frankly, if you're doing a, a, a special for Netflix, if you're doing a special for HBO, like, if you're working on staff or on 
the cast of a show. You're essentially a corporate employee. And now they're complaining about like, oh, I'm not allowed to say or, or do whatever I want. And it's like, yeah, no shit. You work for a giant company. Like it's it's the reality of of who your money comes from dictates what you get to say. And, and in this situation dictates how your art gets to be consumed. Like if you want to be in control of all aspects of it from the production to the way people consume it, you can start your own service. I'm sure that he has the largesse and could get together the creative uh, uh, power to do that if that were in his interest. But like, give me a break with this this whiny bullshit. Yeah, I, it makes it to paraphrase uh, a famous uh, Marvel quote, which you won't appreciate, Nathan, but with great corporate paycheck comes great corporate responsibility um that's just that's like you say once you get paid by somebody to do something there are usually strings of some kind attached but also i would say that you know i personally don't listen to podcasts at faster speeds uh one one of my best friends he does all the time because he wants to cram as much you know content and be as efficient sure. as he can about his day and, and you get all this thing and for me I, I when i start to do that usually it's by accident when i've hit the button by accident and i'm like wow these guys are really talking fast um <laughs> i really lose the one of the biggest things i like about podcasts which hopefully uh, ours has in it which is that you feel that real human humanity in the conversation with the you know the pauses and the beats and the you know eccentric uh, uh, readings of how people interact with one another um, and you, you do kind of lose that when you speed it up you get the information but you don't get the uh, the nuance or the the humanity in it like I say so that's up to the person to decide whether that's important to them or not yeah I uh, you mentioned you did it accidentally I for like I don't know six months in um, 2000 oh gosh probably 12 or 13 had my podcast on speed and a half and didn't know what was going on <laughs> <laughs> like didn't didn't understand what was it was a very uh, old man moment even though I was a much younger man then was this the uh, point in uh, your life where the uh, the alarm clock was made of strawberries or was this not a drug no this is before then okay. but but uh, in in a callback to last week's episode but it was very uh, it was like wow these guys are real manic I of course <laughs> thought it was somebody else's fault um, <clears throat> but it's it's for you I know you've never done this it's a lot like uh, the experience of uh, being around people on cocaine. Yeah, where yeah. as you say, there's no human aspect to it. It's just a blah blah blah, blah of information. Well, let me let me um, correct you there, Nathan. While I have never done cocaine myself, I have been around people doing cocaine a lot. That is true. That is true. <laughs> I won't name any that names. That's true. <laughs> um, that's true. Uh, I don't have a segue from cocaine to Disney, but no, uh, no, do but you want to talk about the next story? Well, they're two of America's favorite drugs, I think, would be the, the segue there. Um, so per Vulture here, uh, now this is a kind of long unspooling story because we don't know all the details, but basically the crux of it is that Disney, which of course last spring acquired uh, Fox for a cool $71.3 billion dollars, now, of course, owns all of the Fox vault, and they are starting to place some of these classic Fox movies literally into a vault so that independent um, theater chains cannot play those movies for at for profit 
theater. So for instance, yeah, when you say movies, you mean literally the films themselves. Yes, at the actual movies. So uh, why this may not seem like a big deal to most people, but then you think about there are a lot of these independent chains that play these classic movies, these revival screenings, or for instance, you know, it's Halloween this week. So they'll th- throw some old horror movies up there for people to come and watch on the big screen in the theater atmosphere. Um, and of course, Fox owns uh, the, the Fox Vault or the Fox catalog uh, has any number of incredible films, whether it's The Fly or The Omen, The Alien Films, Princess Bride is in their catalog, Moulin Rouge, Fight Club, which comes out uh, 20 years this month, if you want to feel old, Nathan. If you wanted to run one of these anniversary screenings, uh, you would not be able to. uh, When we do our, uh, just to to interject real quick, when we do our episode on toxic masculinity, we'll talk about Fight Club. Don't don't worry about that. Yeah, so the question is is why they're doing this. So just a, a couple of theories laid out by this article, and then we can get into your own sure. uh, cut to the crux. So Disney officially declined to comment on the procedure, not surprisingly, as the corporate entity that they are. But there's a couple of different working theories here. One is that Disney has always sort of had this vault strategy where they try to artificially create excitement for their different repertory films by keeping films of the prince out of theaters for years and decades. You might remember this from all the classic animated films, right? You could Fantasia would come into theaters once every 20 years, but you couldn't see it in any other form so that when whether it was VHS back in the day, DVD, then Blu-ray, now more digital streaming, um, there would be this real urge to go and buy it when they actually made it available because it was such a precious resource. Um, But also what could be a part of it, as aforementioned on last week's show, is of course Disney Plus, their streaming app, debuts November 12th. And many of these films, though not all of them, will be part of the catalog. And they just released the full list of what will start on the streaming platform. And it is a lot of films between you have Disney Mm -hmm. films, Fox films, Pixar films, everything in between. It is all the Simpsons as uh, to follow yep. up on something we That's talked right. about last that week. That's right. Yeah, Simpsons on there. Um, and then the, the last and probably most accurate theory is that Disney, with the acquisition of Fox, when you combine now two of the biggest five distributors of films in North America, has claimed up to 40% of North American ticket sales, and it could jump to over 50% once the Fox merger you know, starts to kick in and all those different platforms are being accounted for. Mm-hmm. And the more screens that Disney can control, of course, the bigger market, bigger market share they have. And even if it's one of their own older movies, they don't want a screen taken up by one of these things because it's one less screen that they can show Marvel or Star Wars title or whatever else they want to make sure that people are plunking down their 15 plus dollars for. Yep. Uh, so it's again, um, basic supply and demand. Uh, I think of, of we, we own it. We'll dictate when and where you can watch it. Um, you know, and, and it's obviously a very different strategy than the Netflix uh, consumer based option. I'm sure you can watch it however you want. Um, but they both come from the same place, which is uh, these are corporations with the fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to make money uh, every three-month period, make more money than you made last three months. Uh, and that is the nature of this decision. Um, and I think that while this article raises a lot of very humanizing points, um, it is it is having an ought discussion, as in like this is the way things ought to be. And not really interacting with what is, which is that this is how corporations work. And I think to be ignorant of that in this day and age is is um, 
foolish and and something a person does at their own peril like the line ends with this really sort of sanctimonious uh, uh or i'm sorry the piece ends with this real sanctimonious line appealing to disney to sort of not be the bad guy here but it's like that's not disney's fucking job disney's job is to make more money this year than they did last year um and, and i think they're they're obviously going to do that and they if they were willing to do this with bambi of course they'll do this with alien you right. know, of course they'll do this with Fight Club. Like they deprived kids of things. They don't give a fuck about the small section of nerds who's, you know, also going to plunk down money for Marvel movies, right? So, uh, the other thing I think here is if you want to stop this, you have to give Disney a cut. You have to, as you say, like they want to dictate what's on screens. I think you have to say, all right, we want to do Fight Club, and you get a piece of the house, and we'll. You know, we'll use a, a screening next week for a title you dictate for us. Would that be quid you know pro I mean? quo, Nathan? I hear that's illegal. I believe that would be, yeah, which in this in this environment is not an, a, a, a problem, right? That's no, how this, basic this, this business is done. Practice. Yeah, and like you <clears> – I don't know. It's just It just feels very sort of uh, ignorant to the way business is done, and, and it ties in a little bit to one of my, my concerns in – the sort of emotional honesty we're displaying on this podcast is that to people who operate in this business world, this world of power, this world of, of control, like that is seen as weakness. Um, and so I don't know. I'm, I struggle with that of, about how to sort of find the strength and vulnerability, but uh, uh, not to get too off topic. But um, in, in any event, this is how business is done. If you want to be nostalgic about these things, buy them on DVD. They can't take a DVD from you. I'm you know, cur- yeah, um, I'm curious. Uh, have you uh, when when is the last time that you saw a movie in theaters that was not first run? Uh, that was either some sort of anniversary. Uh, sure. Thing? Yeah, we went to uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey. Okay. Uh, Pre baby, so probably 2015 on uh, for an anniversary of it, uh, and it was at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago. Gorgeous screen. Um, a beautiful old theater. They have. We've seen Casablanca there. We've seen a couple other things. Oh, okay, so you've done it but a few me, times. Yeah, but let me tell you something. My ass is still sore because <laughs> uh, old Because seats. the chairs have not been updated. Like, yeah, yep. uh, Come on, it's it's. And the, when we went to Casablanca, it was the winter, and we were sort of near the theater, and it was like uh, I was almost ready to pass out from the heat. So I'm of the opinion that like this type of nostalgia, I don't need that i don't need a sore ass and 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 to be too hot so i'll do it from the comfort of my home um but there is a theater near us with more comfortable seats that does things like this that i'm sure will be impacted and that's the the thing i thought this article did really well yeah was to talk about all those individual theaters of all the creaky Uh, old seats and all the movie theaters and all the world you had to go and sit in this one right nathan right uh yeah so i don't know i mean it's a bummer, but listen, the solution to all of this is to own a, the hard media yourself. They are already doing, we bought uh, Little Mermaid on Amazon streaming and then it disappeared. They were just no longer offering the title and it didn't matter that we'd plunk down the 20 bucks. It was gone. Uh, um, yes. You know, so it's, it's, um, Ariel had swam off into the sunset. So it, it's, uh, you've got to understand who you're dealing with and like they get painted as evil corporations, but uh, it's literally their job. 
Well, they've had some of the great villains of all time. But let's talk about another way to get media uh, in our next story per deadline. Quibi, which is the new streaming mobile streaming service, it's green-lighted a show called Nice One, which is a comedy game show hosted by stand-up comedian, actor, and writer Ron Funches. The competition features comedians excuse me, attempting to cleverly out-compliment one another in a showdown of sweetness and consideration, which Nathan and I will try out a little bit later in our final segment. So... Be ready I think you're going to be really good at it, Mike. Oh, I'm good at being saccharine, Nathan, if there's anything I'm good at. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about Quibi itself, because that's the more interesting part of this story. No offense to Mr. Funches. Well, and, I mean, uh, first, let's give uh, a little bit of dap to Ron Funches. Like, good for you, dude. Like, he's he's a guy who I uh, – whose career I followed for a couple of years here, because I think he's really funny. Uh, from, like, uh, just seeing clips of him from Portland, uh, like, comedy festivals and things like that. And uh, – he is a dude who has like probably lost 80 pounds over the last year like boxing, amazing voice like too is very distinctive amazing voice. voice weird range like great sense of humor uh manages to balance like being a dad and being very very publicly pro weed um those are those I, are I, qualities I like, that you share as well nathan <laughs> yeah I, i'm I, I i'm in line with ron funches and and uh, all about uh, the intent of this idea whether or not i will get kibby we will we will discuss here. Yes. Uh, so a little bit more about Quibi. Uh, like I said, it's a short form mobile streaming service. It's going to launch next April, just in time for my 40th birthday. Uh, <laughs> and it has sold already $150 million in advertising inventory for its first year. And you might ask yourself, how have they sold so much inventory so quickly? Well, it's led by CEO Meg Whitman, who you may have heard of, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, who you also may have heard of. Um, and they have already raised $1 billion. Pre-launch, they've raised a $1 billion. Um, and they will launch with two subscription tiers when the service um, premieres. It's $8 a month without ads, $5 a month with ads. And the interesting thing about their programming is that it's all short form. So the program is going to be delivered in what they call 10-minute chapters, preceded by one of these 10 or 15-second ads. Um, and Whitman has compared that to author Dan Brown's five-page chapters in his mega-selling book, The Da Vinci Code. So basically, um, serial, serializing their content into nice, small perfect for the low attention span generations um, content. Nathan, what, do you, what are your thoughts about this sort of shorter form distillation of uh, storytelling? Oh, I mean, I, I, I'm i very curious to see if it'll work. They obviously have like significant funds behind it. They have investing from uh, Walt Disney, NBC Universal, Sony Pictures, Warner Media, Liberty Global, and the Alibaba Group. So they have all the places serious. Literally everybody's uh, throwing some some cash in this idea. When you're Jeffrey Katzenberg, I guess you get that that type of street cred. Um, in terms of the short form, I feel like this idea has been sort of in the ether for a while, um, and, I, and maybe its time has come uh, of really sort of uh, focusing on under ten minute uh, uh, content, very slickly very, uh, produced. Uh, obviously, with Funches and some of the other talent, they have big name stars. This is where mad about you is going to be if i'm not mistaken oh. um uh which is interesting because that was a show about sort of conversations after the party and things like that so 10 minutes might be about all the mad about you i can stomach um <laughs> but uh it is um but you know i'll i'll have to hear about it if it, uh, before i i plop down the eight bucks and it, it seems 
it, like the the best version of this is right. Like you see a, a 10 minute thing and you want to email forward it or text forward it to someone. And then they've got to subscribe to Kibby too, to see it. Like, yeah, that's how good they're going to have to be for you to get that subscription. Yeah. I, I'm of two minds on this or 10 minute chapter um, format because on the one hand, my thought is, you know, it's pretty ingrained in culture, the length of things that we watch. But of course, that's changed slowly, especially for the the younger generation watching a lot of YouTube content. But the difference is, is that I, I think one of the reasons that people like YouTube is that you can ping pong around to 100 different subjects and watch, you know, 100 different five minute clips about disparate things. Or even if, you know, go down some Minecraft wormhole and want to watch 100 of those straight but the 10-minute the chapter makes it seem more like, at least in the way that we've conventionally understood storytelling in TV and movies, like if it's Mad About You, for instance, you watch the first act, and then at the act break, mm-hmm. the chapter would be over, mm-hmm. and then you'd have to come back, watch another commercial, and watch the second act, which is about 10 minutes in the 22-minute sitcom format or whatever. But is the cliffhanger or whatever you want to call it that gets you to push on to the next episode so great, especially when it comes to like comedic uh, content? Um, to make you want to keep watching and certainly it definitely needs to be serialized content because let me tell you Nathan I went to a film festival uh, a couple of weeks ago and watched some shorts which of course are you know mm-hmm. standalone 10 minute stories and god mm-hmm. shorts are the worst medium there is basically in all in film and television so uh, I like the <laughs> idea of chapters but a, a standalone 10 minute story there's a reason that other than Pixar shorts before their films there aren't very many successful you know 5 to 10 minute sure, long sure, stories sure 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 uh, also, a a formulaic um, game show like this is is a good uh, type of commodity for this environment. I think. I think that that is the type of thing of okay. Here's the premise. Let's have these people and this host run through it. Do you think that people could slide. only uh, handle ten minutes of sweetness and consideration before they want to get back to people bagging on each other on Twitter? Well, uh, I mean. Our segment won't be 10 minutes long. <laughs> That's very true. I'm going to run out of compliments for you after the first uh, in-breath. So uh, we'll, we'll just have to see. I don't think that's true, Mike. I think you can come up with a lot of them. <laughs> I think you're probably right about that. But we'll see. There, there's a little uh, – we'll, we'll play an ad and have a little break there and see if you want to come back for that segment later. But let's get to our last story uh, and wrap up. Yeah, the you mentioned segment. film festivals. I know it's about a movie you've seen. Yeah. Uh, so per deadline, um, Ford versus Ferrari, which is the forthcoming Matt Damon and Christian Bale uh, race car epic, which I did actually see at the film festival. We can talk a little bit about that in a second. Um, but the interesting thing here is that they've decided to buck conventional wisdom as when it comes to their uh, awards season campaign. So they're going to run both of them, both Damon and Bale, in the lead category or lead actor category during uh, the award season for the Oscars, Golden Globes, etc. To usually, what you see done in these situations is they'll pick someone to run in the lead actor category and put the other person in the supporting actor category in the attempt or the hope that they're more likely to both gain nominations if they do that. But now they're directly competing against each other. Um, And there's a similar situation that's looming for another big movie of this year, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, although it looks like they're going to go the opposite way when it comes to Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Brad Pitt's being run in supporting actor and Leo is being run in lead actor. That's sort of the more traditional uh, tilt to these things. Also fits their characters in that film. Yeah, 
I think that that uh, definitely makes sense. Leading pan versus his stunt man, the man behind the man. So that makes mm-hmm. perfect mm-hmm. sense. Um, it's been 28 years since two stars have competed in the same category and both won nominations. So that's how uncommon this practice is. The last time it happened was 1991 with actually two women in Thelma and Louise when Gina Davis and Susan mm-hmm. Sarandon were both nominated for Best Actress or Lead Actress. Um, and then in, be- in the Best Actor race, you have to go back even further, 1984 uh, to Amadeus with uh, Tom Hall and F. Murray Abraham both landing lead nominations and the latter, F. Murray Abraham, actually winning for uh, mm-hmm. his Oscar that year. Um, but yeah, I've seen the film and the one thing I can say, and we'll talk more about this in our second segment, is it's as close to a balanced uh, two leading performance. Like if you look at both parts, um, I don't know if they have the exact same number of lines, but the uh, amount sure. of weight that they're sort of given, you could make an argument it's slight, ever so slightly tilts towards Matt Damon, but they're both really important characters. And without spoiling anything, basically, Matt Damon was a great racer, and now he's building race cars. He's uh, Shelby, who makes you know Shelby Cobra and all the different mm-hmm. car makers. Um, and then... Um, Christian Bale actually plays the current race car driver where he's going to race Shelby's uh, or Matt Damon's character's car in the uh, Le Mans uh, race. So they they definitely, you know, you spend a lot of time with uh, Christian Bale in the car because he's actually racing the cars, you know, 90% of the time in the movie. But Matt Damon obviously playing uh, a huge role because it's about his journey uh, becoming the sure. car maker and their friendship together. But, uh, yeah, it's just interesting that they're deciding to kind of buck conventional wisdom here, Nathan. What, what do you think about it? Yeah, I think it ties very well into the overall theme and marketing of the film, right? It's, it's Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, these are two big boys in in terms of their status as A-list leading men. I think their egos can handle a little bit of competition, and I think it'll be fun to sort of watch them go head to head in this direct way. I would bet that they are friends about it, and bet that they are friendly about it. Um, What's interesting is like, I, I'm such a dummy ahead. that when I heard about the movie originally, I just assumed one of them was playing Ford and the other was playing Ferrari. Neither of those things is the case, but uh, it would have been funny to see Christian Bale doing a really bad Italian accent playing uh, <laughs> Mr. Ferrari. That would be that would be pretty great. Um, but it is. Uh, I think that that uh, it'll be interesting. I think that this is an instance where uh, some healthy competition can be good. Um, I certainly have observed that in my life of, of friends of ours who write well making me write better or musician friends who are good, talented making me work harder and uh, it'll be interesting if they both get it to see how extreme the like promotional campaign gets in terms of their like appearances on late night shows and stuff I could see it going a like negative campaign uh, angle <laughs> just because they both have pretty good senses of humor yes Matt Damon uh, so is already good at like sort of the rivalry stuff like he does with George Clooney when they were doing the Oceans films they were going back and sure, forth at each other sure. I, I do think well, uh, before we oh god no I was just going to say about the film itself that uh, I tend to think that this will all be a bit of a moot point because I don't think either one of them is going to get nominated not sure. because the movie is not great um, but just when you look at the sort of awards show landscape I was listening to one of my favorite other podcasts about movies the big picture on the ringer and they were sort of running down you know the different uh 
possible nominations. It's just it's a very crowded field, particularly when it comes to lead actor in, in a film. So uh, I think the movie is very good, but it's not. There's a few things that keep it from being great. It's definitely worth seeing, and their performances are both excellent. They're, they may be my two favorite actors, quite honestly. Um, but there's just a few things about the story that I think hold it back from being slam dunk, you know, nominations. Sure, 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 sure. And so even, we're we're. Uh, we'll go ahead. We're going to talk about it more in, in the next segment, but we're running long on this. So let me just ask uh, this to get out of here. As a, as a heterosexual man, uh, who would you do? Matt Damon's always been my man crush of, of choice. Okay. Yeah, I thought you would say that. I'm Christian Bale. I think that uh, uh, illustrates differences between our personalities. I think it encapsulates it perfectly. Uh, I think, yeah, I can't, you know, that sort of smoldering, might throw a phone at someone's head at any moment kind of Christian Baleness. A little volatile, I bet. It's yeah, Patrick you guys, Bateman. It's yeah. it's Patrick Bateman. All, you, you, all I could see all you guys day. having a very steamy affair, Nathan, and uh, me and Matt Damon. I'm, you know, we we'll sit around, wise cracking each other, hugging, cuddling. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get out of this uh, okay. and come back and talk about some of the other movies uh, with two leading roles. Right? Yeah, let's talk about. Yeah, we're trying to find uh, what's the best two lead film with that balance being perfectly in place. We'll talk about it right after this. All right, so piggybacking off of the Matt Damon, Christian Bale story and Nathan and I's love for both of those men, we wanted to try to examine some films that are our favorite two-handers, but true two-handers. There are, of course, many great films in the history of cinema that have uh, two big leading roles, but what we're looking for here are the movies that have the two most prominent possible characters of equal weight, that being the key distinction here. So, for example, a movie like Annie Hall or Silence of the Lambs would not qualify because in Annie Hall, you have Woody Allen and Diane Keaton both playing big roles. But ultimately, it's impossible to argue that that story, despite her being the titular character, is not about Alvy Singer, uh, Woody Allen's character, because it's told entirely from his perspective. He's on screen about three times as much as her. Same with Silence of the Lambs. Clary Starling. Hannibal Lecter, two amazing, weighty characters. When they're in scenes together, they're throwing haymakers at each other, but Anthony Hopkins ultimately is only in that film for about 15 minutes. So they're not quite that balance we're looking for. We're looking for a movie that is as good as possible, and the two lead characters have as close to heavy a weight in the film itself. Um, so those are our parameters. Nathan, that all makes sense to you? It does, although I'm immediately going to push back on Silence of the Lambs. Okay. Um, when's the last time you saw it? Let's see. It's been a little while. I read reread the book uh, more recently than I have seen sure. the film. But isn't Anthony so, Hopkins in like five scenes? Yes, but his presence and the character of Lecter is powerful f from the moment the movie begins. Right? So that she goes in to see her boss is how the movie opens. And we're beginning to build the entrance for Lecter as well. So, like, you go into meeting him in that first scene, having heard them talk about him for the last 10 minutes so that you have as much fear and anticipation of this person as she does. So, and and he gets a, an extraordinary arc, right? Goes from captivity to freedom and revenge, um, just as she does, goes from being a... a you know, a starling to a, a bigger, stronger bird, I suppose. But I, I, I would say that that's a good example, particularly just because of his omnipresence 
uh, um, of one that could count, even though it doesn't fit the the screen time rules that I think is a good uh, uh, a rule of thumb for most other movies. Well, it, it strikes me as uh, perfectly on brand that you would completely crush the entire parameters of the game with your first example. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, no, that, that is a, it, it is a very compelling argument because when we were talking about it early on, my first favorite movie when I was 12 years old was A Few Good Men and Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson both have huge parts in that. Uh, and the reason I was mm-hmm. saying it would not qualify is that even though the entire movie is building up to their uh, face-to-face uh, putting... Nicholson on the stand he's just not in the movie as much and but the, the the compelling part to your argument I think is that both characters have an arc which that is of course not the case in A Few Good Men because in most movies you have a protagonist and antagonist doesn't need to necessarily be a good guy and a bad guy but it, in large part the antagonist or that sort of uh, foil character for the main character usually doesn't arc as well and I think if you're going to make a compelling argument in this uh, category that we're, we're naming our favorite films that do this, you need to have, at, at minimum, you need both characters to change a little bit because that that's obviously what stories, at least film stories, are about, are people who change. <laughs> yeah, that's the promise of a movie. Uh, so how do you want to do this? You want me to sort of throw a title out that I, I think is pretty worthy and, and we can talk about it? Yeah, and I'll tell you why it doesn't qualify under the parameters that I set That sounds for. great. Um, <laughs> Okay, so in no particular order here, although I see I, I have a, a Let's somewhat th- of a recent just, yeah, just, just throw out one at a, one at a time sure. here. We can, uh, catch me if you can. Uh, great, great example. Yeah, that's you know. It's, so yeah, it's sadly, a film I've Go never ahead. seen, despite my former bosses producing it. Are you serious, Mike? Yeah, and, and everyone. Oh man, your wheelhouse, buddy. Yeah, um, it seems up my alley. Period piece, DiCaprio being a, a movie star, using his charisma to its fullest extent. Tom Hanks, sort of as that like bumbling-ish type of guy, but also, like, secretly sharp, right? That, like, way Tom Hanks is, like, doesn't seem like he'd be one of the most powerful, famous people in the world, but look, he is. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, gorgeous Jennifer Garner, gorgeous uh, cinematography, really good cat and mouse game. Um, Which which is more gorgeous, Jennifer Garner or the cinematography? Jennifer Garner. Okay. Uh, and the we got to straighten this thing back out after those Bale Damon comments. <laughs> um, the uh, uh, other thing I was going to say is it ends with absolutely no message that crime is wrong. Great. The, the moral of that movie, like I think many of these we're going to talk about is basically, yeah, if you can get away with it, you might end up working for the FBI someday. <laughs> um so see it. I, I think it's a good one. What, uh, what it, it, you got on your list? Yeah, it's been long on my list, so I, I will I will move it to the to the top five of films that I, I should have seen a long time ago and still haven't. Um, we could do a whole podcast on that one. Uh, I'll uh, piggyback or sort of dovetail, if you will, a lot of animal uh, analogies uh, to another Leonardo DiCaprio film, even more current because I, it was probably my favorite film of this year, which is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I think is really uh, a perfect example of what we're going for here because Leo's character and Brad's character, while while one is the leading man and one is the stunt man, there are entire sections of the film where they just kind of go off and make it that one guy's story and then kind of weave them back together. And they sort of uh, kind of makes like a figure eight almost where we go off with Leo for mm-hmm. a while. We go off with Brad for a while. But they both Leo's. I don't know if either one of them truly arcs because they're such dunces in, in a sense. That's what I love about the movie is they're both not the brightest pair, even though they're incredibly charismatic. Um, but the, I, th- I mean, I think that's part of the fairy tale element of it is yeah. that they they don't change the world changes and sort of invites them in. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, Literally and, for so, Leo at the very end of the movie in that last that's shot. Right. Yeah, but I, I that's I think what was my favorite part of the movie. 
uh, among many things that I liked, but just you really felt like that friendship, which is also a professional relationship because there's an inherent power dynamic given that one, uh, Brad Pitt works for Leo DiCaprio. Um, but you really felt equal weight to each of their stories. You, you and, mm-hmm. and also has a very important thing if you are going to do a two-hander, which is when they ping pong from uh, a Leo section over to Brad Pitt, you're just as interested in or not like let down that you don't get to spend more time with Leo because you're excited to spend more time with Brad. Yeah, that's so funny. I, I did feel a little bit like when we were with that Leo Western scenes where he was uh, shooting uh, that, that uh, film with a girl, I was a little bit like, mm, I'd rather see, you know, Brad Pitt speeding around uh, L.A. in that car and like uh, looking at, uh, I'm blanking on her name, Annie McDowell's daughter. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but I think that is a great example of what we're talking about here with the film where, where both could be uh, uh, considered the lead. And it's definitely uh interesting that it won't be pursued that way in the oscar race let's let's finish up Um, each one of the our suggestions with gun to your head if you had to say who the lead character is who you would go with so let's start with yours uh, and catch me if you can if you had to choose between tom hanks and leo who who ultimately do you think it's is more about their story uh leo okay and and once upon a time in hollywood oh leo yeah, I think ultimately, just because that last shot of him being led into Sharon Tate's house, I think mm-hmm. I think it's it gives so him big. And, a and slight nod. It's like a, a horse race where at the last second his head goes ahead to get the the wire. Yeah, and and I think the point of Brad Pitt's character is um, that he is a breed of masculinity that the world is passing by, mm-hmm. um, and that breed wouldn't be the lead. That's yeah. part of why the world is passing him by, you know. Yeah. Like, um, Totally. Another – all right, so uh, I'm going to move on now uh, yeah. to another uh, uh, story with Leonardo DiCaprio in it. Uh, oh, the my. Departed. Okay. Um, I think it's pretty solid him and, and again, uh, uh, Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Um, Matt Damon. Uh, but, yeah, I think they have pretty equal weight in that. I think it's a pretty good cat and mouse game that we get to play uh, the sort of omniscient uh, narration position of – uh, or of seeing, and I think it's a good uh, one where obviously they both have significant changes in their lives Yep. over the course of that film. I think the two best genres for this, uh, even though many of my favorite films actually don't uh, adhere to either one, but uh, some sort of cat and mouse you know, thriller is a great example. And then, of course, mm-hmm. romant- romantic comedies being the other obvious example with the, the man and the woman um, having some sort of equal weight to them. But yeah, that's a, that's a really fun one. It makes me think of like the, the single best different medium so tv shows do this a lot more commonly than movies do but like killing eve which is a great example of mm-hmm. feeling equal weight uh, especially it's important in those stories to care just as much about the quote-unquote villain as you do the quote-unquote good guy trying to hunt them down and i think the departed does a particularly good job of that with those two yep yep i would put in if we're talking tv the first season of true detective yeah a fantastic great job one. as well yep uh, uh, what else is on your list Uh, The next one I have, which I think may be the most successful, at least when it comes to emotional journey, uh, is Shawshank Redemption. Because while the story plot-wise is all about Andy Dufresne, uh, the character that actually arcs the most is Morgan Freeman's red character. He's also the narrator of the story. So you have real uh, interesting balance there between the two characters because 
uh, Andy Dufresne is in a lot more scenes, but because Red's uh, perspective is the way in which we view the story, um, you get an incredible kind of balance as you bounce back and forth between them because ultimately it's Tim Robbins' character that changes uh, Morgan Freeman's character. So it's sort of a reversal of the sort of first person listed or the, the character the story's about being the uh, catalyst for change rather than the one being changed. Sure. Yeah, I think that's a, a great example. Not one of my personal favorite movies. I think it's a little bit overrated, maybe, or I don't I know, overexposed. That. It was, it was on, on TNT a little too much in my yes. teens. Definitely um, it's a little heavy-handed and a little overexposed, but I think ultimately for me, just I, I, I would put the last... Though the last 15 to 20 minutes of that from the moment that Morgan Freeman gets out of prison until he reunites sure. with Andy, I'd put that up against any movie as far as just making me uh, have goosebumps and, and really feel like all the payoff that of all the setup that the movie has done uh, really it, it, it hits me right in the old right in the old heart, Nathan. And those, the, those uh, I really enjoy the Stephen King short story it's based on, too. Yeah, it's a great one. Um, we'll go through. I have a, a bunch of like silly ones here. OK, uh, yeah. but that I think are good. You want to rattle off the silly uh, ones in succession? Yeah, here? sure. So, uh, Tango and Cash. Obviously. Uh, with, there, if uh, there's an amper stand, it's got to be Russell. a. Yeah, Turner and it's Hooch is count. on my list, right? Turner and Hooch right? is on my um, list. Yep, Turner and Hooch as well. Uh, then, um, let's see. Uh, Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. We're talking <laughs> toxic masculinity. Speaking of which, so, uh, quick. I have not seen Don Johnson in a film in a, quite a while, but I saw also at the film festival saw Knives Out, which is definitely worth seeing, and it uses Don Johnson to uh, strong effect. I for, had forgotten I was rewatching Django, and he was in that. Oh, that's um, right. The uh, yeah, he was he was full full blown Don Johnson. Um, quick Harley Davidson the Marlboro Man story. So it it comes out in like nineteen ninety six ninety seven. No time, no time tree. limits, Nathan. There are no time limits on these these sorts of anecdotes. Take your time. I'm in a creative writing class um, as a sophomore in college in the year 2000, and a guy turns in a short story that is Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. <laughs> like, scene for fucking scene, dude. He, he, he knows every, it, right? He, he, no, I don't, I mean, he knew it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he okay. clearly had ripped it off. Yeah. No one else in the class but me had seen it. Uh, and so, like, I let it go for, like, 10 minutes and then was just, like, like sort of let him have it. Um, but it's a good balance of, of Mickey Rourke and Don Johnson, two guys who are obviously significantly past their prime. Wait, even I, when that I, movie was... I need to sit in this classroom for a second with you in this memory, Nathan. What happens sure. when you when you take him to task on ripping off this uh, American classic? Uh, I mean, he got quiet and was like, yeah, okay. And even the teacher was like, well, if that's true, you got to do this over. Uh, and then I sort of like retreated into the back. What a little snitch you are. You are Omar Little's coming for well, you, man. Dude, I'll tell you what. <laughs> well, I mean, don't fucking do that. Don't steal other people's ideas. Like, no, I'm, I'm just especially, teasing you. I don't know if, if. You know, I, well, I see it in my students sometimes where it's like, all right, you're a junior taking this class because you think it's an easy A. That's one thing. But if you like are trying to make a career out of this, you absolutely cannot do that. 
Yeah, um, no. I, I, so. I'm just giving you a hard time, but I think it's. I think I know it, you are. I, I would hate that story. Would be terrible if no one ever knew, except you, the two of you. But it would also <laughs> been a bit of fun movie if you, like, after a class, just tried to use that very small thing as blackmail to extort him for the rest of his college career. But <laughs> even though the stakes were very low. Um, if he had anything worth extorting, he wouldn't have been <laughs> ripping off Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. That's right. Um, uh, and then I got Hobbs and Shaw, right? Uh, sure. And then more serious ampersands, uh, Thelma and Louise and Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. Neither uh, of which I have seen either. And add those to okay. the embarrassing list of films that I have not seen, at least in their entirety. I've seen scenes from both, uh, you know, sure, 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 of course. Scenes. Um, Bonnie and Clyde is... If you are of the opinion Faye Dunaway is attractive, it will confirm that suspicion. Um, she is she is delightful in it. Uh, and uh, Thelma and Louise, I've also never seen all the way through, but we have a um, professor of uh, the school I teach at from Mexico, and he told me that in Mexico, the title of Thelma and Louise isn't Thelma and Louise. It's, uh, in Spanish, a, a very peculiar ending. <laughs> um, which, if, if you're familiar with how that movie ends, is a pretty, a pretty appropriate title. A quick question um, for you on Bonnie a, and Clyde. Yeah. I, I have one quick question on Bonnie and sure. Clyde. At what point in the film do uh, Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway announce that La La Land won the Oscar in, in incorrectly? <laughs> uh, in the opening ten minutes, if I remember. Oh right. yeah, get it right out of the way. Uh, you know, get right it out of the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. um yeah, do you want to... Yeah, what's, th- what else I'll, you got? I'll throw out some more silly ones before we get back to, like, uh, movies I actually think are tremendously good. Not that these movies aren't great, but just maybe lighter fare that have good uh, balance between the two leads. Sure. What about, what about Bob, one of my favorite movies from a kid, Richard oh, Dreyfuss and Bill Murray? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, you see a lot of the story through Bill Murray's perspective because he's, you know, the big comedic lead that are getting people in the theater. But ultimately, it is Richard Dreyfuss's story. Again, gun to my head. He's the one that changes. and um, But they both change. So it, it's kind of a fun one. And uh, just Bill Murray, just at the peak of Bill Murray's powers. And Richard Dreyfuss, sure. really right before he like kind of left the Hollywood universe and being in things regularly. Um, yeah. yeah, he did. I think uh, Mr. Holland's opus might have been after that. Yeah, but, but that was about yeah, it. He's sort yeah. Of, yeah, he, was, he has enough. Uh, uh, yeah, I love that movie. That wasn't on my list. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, one other one. So th- here's a couple that I ultimately um, crossed out because I don't think they sure. quite meet the criteria. Another Bill Murray movie, Lost in Translation, because ultimately th- there's just far more weight on Bill Murray's character than Scarlett's character, even though her character obviously is very important. And what's interesting is that, you know, Sofia Coppola wrote and directed it. And obviously she probably had a lot more personally in common with Scarlett's character in, in that movie. But I think the the beauty of it is that you really feel, uh, you know, all those those scenes of Bill Murray by himself, just how isolated he is. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a compelling movie. Although I will say, I rewatched it recently last year uh, with someone that mm-hmm. had never seen it before. It's it it is a little bit slow. I, I I have to say, I've I've never seen it for that very reason. People have told me I would think it's slow, and I have, as you'll come to see, I have a hard time. If the movie was before <laughs> I was born. Or is sort of otherwise slow. I'm, it's hard for me to give a shit, man. Uh, a couple other, a couple other ones. Uh, we've had an argument off mic about this movie. Uh, Book Smart from this year, definitely. It, 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 you, one thing you can say about it is they do put equal weight in the two female yep. characters. And then the, the movie that it you know feels like a sort of uh, new version of is Super Bad, which another movie yep. I rewatched uh, this past year. That one does not hold up for me at all. I don't know if it's just. 
this I mean, I love both mm-hmm. of them and I enjoyed watching it, but just I remember thinking, man, this movie was tremendous and it's fun, but it yeah, it just it didn't quite it certainly different wasn't time an A plus in your life, watch. Different yeah. different cultural place, different. Just everything was different, man. Yeah, um, I think so. I, I felt the same way. I tried to rewatch it and turned it off. Um uh, yeah, so those are a couple of the 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 one other yeah, like I would also put on the sort of silly list um face off. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep, the that's 1997 a good one. classic with uh, uh John Travolta and Nick Cage. Have uh, you heard as, the anecdote uh, I've heard it a couple times recently but that it wasn't until that film when John Travolta started doing his Nick Cage impression when they switched faces that Nick Cage realized that he was someone that could be uh caricatured or impersonated which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> That is very funny. No, I have not heard that. Um, that's that's like someone teaching Jeff Goldblum that. Ridiculous. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but yeah, I think they get equal weight. I, I, you know, that's in that cheesy, huge, ridiculous '90s premise. Uh, getting back to serious movies, I've got three left that are probably what everybody's thinking of, right? Like, okay, uh, uh, Heat. Yep, that's know, on my list. Uh, De Niro and Pacino, obviously. I, I remember enjoying it. I probably would think it's too violent now. Um, I haven't seen it in quite some time, but I remember them getting pretty equal weight. Uh, no Country for Old Men. Oh, that's uh, I've a great seen one. more recently. Um, but well, yeah, that, that obviously, the, the cat and mouse. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think No Country for Old Men is the most is a great example. It's one of my 10 favorite movies, and I didn't put it on my list because I completely forgot about it. I think the thing that threw me off on that one is because there's three characters that have a lot of weight. But obviously, mm-hmm. uh, the, the great thing about that movie is it the plot is about Josh Brolin, but the movie is about Tommy Lee Jones, uh, which I think is why it holds up so well to rewatching. And then, of course, you have, uh, you know, uh, Chigurh is one of the great villains of all time. So great choice. Mm-hmm. And, and then the last one uh, I have is Godfather 2. Yes. Where you have uh, De Niro and Pacino again, but uh, different storylines. Yeah, I think that 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 one was on my list as well. I think it's it's pretty, again, easier with the gun to your head to just, you know, definitely more weight to Michael. But uh, I think that that's a, that's a great example as well. Yeah. So here's a few of my other like top, top choices. Um, let's see. So this one, it, it definitely it's clear whose story it is. But when you think about the two parts uh, is a good example. Training Day which um, oh, sure. yeah. Denzel won Best Actor for, but it's clearly Ethan Hawke's story. But there's there's so mm-hmm. much weight to his character. I, I think that that movie will always be remembered in my mind as how fucking good Ethan Hawke is. Because to mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. share the screen with Denzel at just firing you know missiles in every scene, uh, it takes a lot uh, to stand up to that. It's, it's like playing one-on-one with Michael Jordan, I think is what Ethan Hawke described yeah. it as when he did it. Um, let's see, what else? Um, Rain Man. Uh, so Dustin oh, Hoffman yeah. wins the Oscar. Uh, he has the showy role of being, you know, the mentally has autism, but it's totally Tom Cruise's story. He's the one that changes, sure, sure, obviously, because sure. sure. Dustin Learning Hoffman's be not person. capable. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that that's one of my all time favorite movies. My my dad, who uh, and that's that's Cruise throwing a hundred and two mile an hour fastball and realizing like, oh, I can also like be an emotionally vulnerable person yeah and giving uh, and, getting no credit for it either in, in a way because like mm-hmm. no one ever talks about him in that movie but that 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 movie i think shows what he could do in some smaller parts like he does later in his career where he's actually a really good actor not just a movie star but he's both in that movie and that's what makes it great yeah 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 you see the the few good men shades you see the uh, what he can do in magnolia uh, right. In that movie, exactly. For sure. Yeah. Not politically correct, but my my late father <laughs> used to call me Rain Man because if I didn't go to bed at you know exactly nine o'clock or didn't have my pillow when I was a kid, I would just you know have meltdowns. So I guess there there are huh. some similarities. Uh, let's see. 
So my top uh, Shawshank was made, and, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood were definitely my top five. But the other two that we have not mentioned so far are When Harry Met Sally. Um, using sure, it's sure. definitely the romantic. A lot of romantic comedies, if you really look at them closely, they're clearly one person's story. I think that one does it. Mm-hmm. It's it's ultimately more probably Billy Crystal's story, but they definitely get uh, equal. Uh, shrift and that's why the movie works so well and it kind of redefined the genre Um, and then maybe my favorite just subtly and getting back to apparently I just have a big Ethan Hawke fetish is uh, all the before sunrise before sunset uh, movies sure 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 sure. yeah not uh, those uh, not my cup of tea but yeah yeah, I appreciate that that they're well made I I, uh, even though I think because it establishes the movie before sunrise might be slightly more memorable before sunset the second film i believe i have those titles right um in the right order uh the end of before sunset has two of my favorite moments in film ever uh, both at the end and both julie delpy is responsible for so i i think i think i just want to marry julie delpy is, is the short version of the story but right there's this i don't know if you've seen it recently but there's this moment uh near the end where they're driving to the airport to take ethan hawk home and Ethan Hawke's kind of having this meltdown about his uh, his marriage breaking down and his life kind of being in shambles. And Julie Delpy and him are sitting uh, in this sort of like captain's chairs in the back seat. So they're not, you know, right next to each other. They have a little bit of personal mm-hmm. space. And Ethan Hawke's having this meltdown. He's not aware of it, but Julie Delpy, because of the way that the camera is set up, Linkletter directed, uh, she reaches over to comfort him and stops herself because she realizes that that they don't have that relationship right now. Um, sure. And she kind of pulls back. It's such a beautiful moment. And then the way that the movie ends when he realizes he's going to miss his plane and he doesn't care and she just starts dancing before the credits run off. Just sexiness at its absolute paramount. But, sure. Uh, sure, 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 yeah. sure. So, yeah. That, that, um, that. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good list. I don't have uh, any other ones. I have a couple, like, debatable ones, but no huge ones come to mind. Um if you are a listener and want to get in touch with us about this, you can find me on Twitter at DeWitticisms. Uh, and Mike, where are you? I am at Full of Maloney. And uh, I would say that we, hopefully, if we're doing this right, we would qualify under this, like two equal strong male leads, you know, at the, at the front of this podcast with equal weight. That's right. I think that's true. Um, and we're going to come back and talk about something a little bit different than this topic, but somewhat related sort of in the the biopic sphere um so it'll be a tonal shift so i won't even tease it we'll just pick up with that uh, after this Welcome back. Um, so we are recording this on Halloween, October 31st. Uh, and October, in addition to being Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which you've probably seen everywhere, uh, it's also Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Um, and DV is not something that people like to talk about. Uh, and it's not something that is very sort of easy to talk about, but it is statistically something that impacts a lot of people, one in three women one in six men sort of deal with domestic violence, which is essentially uh, violent or abusive language or behavior from somebody you love and trust and usually live with. So your parents, your siblings, your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or 
uh, any point sort of in between, maybe your roommate in, in certain situations. Um, and so uh, I like to joke that uh, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month because it ends on Halloween and DV is fucking scary. Um, and I think that humor is a very, very important part of approaching conversations about domestic violence. Um, and I think that there's a reason for that. Um, I think that at the core of domestic violence, there is a discrepancy. Um, and it can read sometimes like comic discrepancy. And as we'll get to, I think the movie I, Tanya, uh, from a couple of years ago did an extraordinary job of depicting this. Um, so I want to sort of lay this case out for you, Mike, uh, with your sort of commentary and interaction. And you can maybe help me from sort of going off the rails uh, <laughs> into offensiveness or, or a lack of empathy or, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe falling apart emotionally, depending on how into this we really get. Um, um, I think, yeah, a couple so, of things. Just uh, one, uh, because it kind of sounds similar, just Nathan is saying DV, D is in dog, V, or D is in domestic, V is in violence, not TV. Yes, yes. Uh, not they, TV, they, yes, they, DV. Yeah, they do sound similar. Uh, and just be glad that I'm doing this segment with you rather than the guy you ratted out for uh what, what is it marlboro what is it in the marlboro man harley davidson yeah harley, the marlboro that's man. right how could i forget anyway uh, proceed nathan and i will uh i will Iconic try to images i will be holding the bicycle from the back and i may let go at any point you may not realize it <laughs> all right good i appreciate that uh okay so let's start with the sort of the discrepancy uh, at the heart of domestic violence this is essentially relationships where someone is telling you they love you right and then they're also beating the shit out of you or controlling your economic purse strings or using manipulation like uh, 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 language or abusive language or, or even sort of playing the victim can be a form of this where they're sort of exerting control over your life and not letting you have your personhood even though they say they love you, right? And so there's this juxtaposition there. Um, and so this gets hard to discuss when we think it, about it in terms of people. So... Right. If you look at something like Roseanne, you have Dan Connor, uh, John Goodman's character. Uh, did you watch Roseanne? Uh, yes, I have seen it. Yeah. Okay. The earlier one. We're obviously not talking about that crazy bitch now. Yeah, the Connors. Um, the, yeah, not the Connors. Um, uh, so uh, John Goodman, big, heavy set, blue collar character, uh, Dan Connor. If he were to choke his 10 year old son, DJ, it would be unspeakably horrific to watch right mm. uh if you were to choke him until his tongue came out of his mouth it would just picturing it makes me uncomfortable right yeah but homer simpson in the world of animation can do that and get away with it right and it's it's funny it's played for laughs so let's as we frame this discussion let's imagine uh, uh, uh the world of animation just because it it takes away a little bit of the humanity i think th that can get in the way here so homer simpson uh you know tells bart uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I love you, but also smacks him upside the head. Or, or even, I guess, going back to live action, um, uh, Frank Costanza, when George gets the job at the Yankees, says, be nice, and then smacks him in the head, right? Here, classic um, sitcom discrepancy. Here's who I think I am. Here's proof I'm not that thing, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the same as the DV discrepancy of, uh, here's me saying I love you, and here's me proving that I don't with this abusive and horrible action, right? Mm -hmm. uh, would, would you say that is a fair 
comparison. Yeah, absolutely. And if you, if you, uh, a quick interjection just on sort of the uh, emotional underpinnings of this that I have, I don't have any sure. experiences directly with DV, but I do have um, a lot of experience with the sort of underlying core emotional issue, which is codependence, uh, but sure. in, interrelational codependence, not codependence with, a, you know, alcohol or drugs or something. Um, and I actually did um, earlier this year in the, in the interest of full disclosure, as we like to share here, sure. I did a group therapy, um, six-week group therapy training on relational codependency. And and the interesting thing about, thing about domestic violence is that it takes the core idea, which is that two people uh, are emotionally dependent upon one another, and they create this sort of unspoken agreement where they're uh, unhealthily over-reliant on the other person. But it creates this dynamic mm-hmm. where both people really do believe that they need the other to literally survive. I mean, they may not think about it in those terms, mm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. They, they have created this dynamic that they, they actually feel like they cannot get out of. And I've certainly experienced that a lot in life, uh, not with any of sure. these violent underpinnings, but it does, it, feel, it can feel like when you are wired that way, um, like you don't have a choice, that you're not making choices to continue to choose this unhealthy relationship. And of course, the tragedy of yep. DV, as you're going to get more into, is that it, it, it then transcends even another boundary where the violence is um, one of the things that's keeping the person there, that uh, emotional uh, torture that is uh, is occurring it is, is creating this secondary trauma in addition to the unhealthy dynamic that's already in place to keep it in place. Yeah, and it becomes, of course, this this vicious cycle. Um, in the interest of full disclosure, I would argue that you do have uh, experience with DV because I would say that when we were on that vacation in Arizona and I grabbed our friend by the throat, that qualified uh, as violence in an arena where there shouldn't have been any violence. Yes, I, I, um, I've forgotten about that. I guess I was thinking about me being well, one of, of the two participants in, in when sure, I was sure, sure. that. Yeah, but I've certainly witnessed sure, these but, things. Yeah, and 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 in in saying that, I'm revealing that like I do have experience with this from all perspectives, from the perspective of of bearing witness, from being a victim, and and from being a, a perpetrator before I sort of came into a place of of self-awareness um and through all of that humor has been a huge part of it and even that story when we tell it we don't tell it horrifically we tell it as a joke yeah right well, uh, I, I never of, really of, thought about the parallels between you as homer simpson and our buddy john as Bart, but it kind of works <laughs> that works in a lot of ways yeah um that, that works in a lot of ways but so it is it is something where i think there's this link here and and i think part of it is you know if you're in a situation like this being funny is a great way to not get the shit kicked out of you mm-hmm. right like it's a great way to sort of deflect it and and manage the sort of beast you might be living with um but it also is True, I think that a lot of people who have a great sense of humor have this in their past. Uh, and I certainly know, I, I guess let's go approach it the other way, that I know a lot of people who have this in their past, even friends of ours who have great senses of humor, and not necessarily, I don't think, you know, abuse your kids to make them funny. That is not uh, obviously what I'm saying. But uh, I think there is some some bizarre connection here. And, and to really highlight it for me in... Um, in sixth grade, sort of some some things culminated where we had this this the domestic violence had always been a part of my life in in terms of like threats of abuse from my dad or or physical abuse from my sister, 
but we had like an incident where a guy who was renting a room from us was like super violent and and had to be uh, removed from the house by the police and and it, it was a real sort of you know it was the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of being like okay we're gonna just start everybody looking at these types of behaviors and one of the things my family did as like an escape uh, to feel better was we started to get into DC stand-up comedy uh, and like go to shows and and go to improv shows and stuff like that and it provided such a a cool uh, escape there um, and I had thought that this was something my family understood and could talk about uh, but I recently have been talking about my to my mom about um, all right, so we'll go we'll go all the way back. So at six months old, I had a, a skull fracture, which mm. is a nice way of saying it. If you reverse those words, it, it sounds a lot more like what it actually was, which is a fractured skull. Um, and like my whole life, I was sort of told, oh, maybe somebody dropped you or, or the babysitter dropped you maybe or maybe we banged your head into a door frame. Well, now that I have a kid who has... I genuinely put effort into trying to break her own skull, uh, you know, who has had headers off rocks at the lake and pushed herself backwards in her chair and like slipped on a tennis ball and fell back on the tennis court. Like, lo and behold, it's pretty tough to break a skull. Um, and so I had my mom a couple years ago write up what she remembers about this and, and um, I wasn't ready to read it. And I, I, recently have been in a place where I was ready to read it. So I had her send it to me. Um, and, and man, it is so clear between the lines here that, um, so the other thing I'm not mentioning is my, my dad at the time was hitting my mom. Uh, and in this write up, she's done uh, telling the story, obviously from her perspective, it's so clear that Obviously, you don't know, right? This isn't a cold case episode where we're going right. to cut to a flashback and, and get an answer. But, you know, you have a violent person, you have a violent injury to a child, like one and one sometimes equals two, right? That that in all likelihood, uh, my dad is responsible for this injury I suffered, whether it's whether it's like the ultimate version of that of him trying to kill me or like just total negligence from a, a drunken person who wasn't ready to be a dad is another story. But um, I thought, we could talk about this. Um, and I really was wrong. Um, I was really, really wrong about it and, and approached it. Uh, uh, you, I was wrong sorry, about just my to interject real quick. Yeah. Do you mean talk about it with your mom or your dad? Or? With my mom. Okay. With my mom. Obviously not with my dad. Yeah. With my mom. Okay. Um, my dad would not even, I don't know that he can acknowledge that this actually happened right. at that this makes point. Sense. Like he's so, disassociated and out of touch which is the other element of this right that you have to tell yourself that the treatment you're getting is love right so you create this image of like well the way my dad beat the shit out of me but that's your my dad and dad loves me so it must be love to beat the shit out of things mm -hmm. like wait a minute um but so i had a conversation with, with my mom about this and and to her credit like the degree of difficulty for this conversation is through the roof um but I was really surprised at how much she didn't want to talk about it um, and how much it was embarrassing to her still and and um, uncomfortable to her and, and uh, not at all funny, right? I think it has um, a lot to do with just the way that 
trauma is processed because while I don't have any firsthand mm-hmm. experience, my mom grew up in a very uh, situation fraught with domestic violence, both first her mom, who was an alcoholic and died when she was five years old. Uh, my mom was the fourth of five girls. Uh, my grandfather uh, definitely, you know, beat her at different points. So frustrated by her alcoholism, you know, trying to, you know, get her mm-hmm. rein her in or what have you. And then even when she was alive, but after too, my grandfather also, you know, different times, certainly grew up in the 50s, but no less uh, excusable, would certainly, you know, take the belt and 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 hit sure. uh, my mom and her sisters. And my mom is one of these people who just always talks about how she doesn't remember anything. And it wasn't really until the, my mom's last, the same way. last couple of years where I, I finally convinced her to go to a little, to do a little bit of therapy. And what it ended up being was um, doing some trauma therapy because she didn't necessarily go for this, but she was just having a really hard time. And I just thought it might help her to deal with some of these things mm-hmm. by talking to professional. And they did a lot of uh, what's it called? The ETD or whatever, you know, the stuff that works on, on trauma and and really what they ended up talking about almost entirely wasn't the stuff that was bothering her in the moment but all these she basically had PTSD she was diagnosed with because of all these terrible experiences she had as a kid at the hands of her father and the weird dichotomy for me is that my grandfather when he became a grandparent was the sweetest nicest Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, man mm -hmm. ever Uh, he the one time he did take a uh, try to take a belt to me when I was in Ireland with my grandparents my mom wasn't there he did you know very just kind of over the hand not that bad at all but sure, when, sure, sure. when sure. we got back from the airport I I, my, I told my mom everything of course so I let that slip in our phone conversation so the moment we got off the plane she took him aside and she said if you ever lay a hand on my kid again you'll never see him again and he never did but it, it just to sure. your point yeah I don't it's not even that they um in some cases, don't want to talk about it. It's that they've disassociated uh, post facto to not want to have well, to live e- in that space. That's exactly right, and and that's what my mom was saying is that even at the time, like when the police, I mean, I was an infant with a broken skull. The police got involved, right? So they at the time presumed guilt, but they presumed guilt of my mother. No one really ever talked to my dad, and I was like, well, why didn't you tell them you were being hit? Uh, and her response sort of floored me that like. She couldn't admit it to herself. Um, and it's that level of disassociation that I think sort of also produces this this level of discrepancy with reality for, for uh, people who experience domestic violence. And, and I think that to bring it full circle to, to I, Tanya, I, Tanya displayed this better than anything I've ever seen. The like flippant ways – Galuli was abusive to to Tanya in that and the ways she reciprocated uh, and and the ways it sort of perpetuated the relationship she had with her mother uh, were all extraordinary representations of this. And I don't know, did you see it in a theater or with someone else? Yeah, I saw it on opening weekend. So it was a pretty full theater. And um, yeah, I think one I I loved it. Well, real quick. Hold on. Did people laugh? Yeah. Do people I, laugh in those? There things? was definitely some laughter, and you know that sort of laughter that clears tension. You know. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and and I think the the strongest moment w- where it was just sort of transcendent is when she breaks the fourth wall. She's holding the shotgun, going after him, and she breaks the fourth wall, and she goes, "This never happened." Um, while we're watching it happen, you know, and it's it's yep. so hard to parse out what is reality, and and to the point of your mom and 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 both my mom of women who and and not that this is exclusively a women issue i mean my dad was the victim of this which is why he perpetuates it but but um 
for those women in particular, I know they wanted to do things differently with us. And what I've noticed now after, you know, my mom and my mom, I'm going to be 40 in January. She's one of the, if not the single longest relationship I have. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've, I've studied this person. Um, she has all the right intentions to not behave that way. But ultimately, all of her models are abuse. And so even when she's she's well-intentioned, sometimes in pursuit of getting what she wants, her tactics are an abuser's tactics just because that's what her brother did or her, her dad did or, or my dad did or I did at points. Uh, and so she's just sort of repeating what she has seen work for other people. And that's the part of it that is like, extraordinarily insidious is that when you when i i'll use me when i as as a a person who's experienced this as a victim of this when i then feel threatened or feel vulnerable it is extraordinarily hard not to fall back on those i'm just going to dominate this and and those like bully power tactics Mm -hmm. um Anyway, I don't. I I I, uh, I really think that um, it's something people should talk about more, and I understand obviously why it's hard to talk about. But I think that in the spirit of sort of modeling different types of behavior for ourselves and hopefully for our audience, it was something worth bringing up on this show. No, absolutely, and I think that you know to your point, uh, a lot of times abuse uh, victims of uh, especially physical domestic violence can think in their mind that they're more evolved and better because they're not physically abusing, you know, the people that come down the mm-hmm. line next mm-hmm. uh, without realizing that they can have just as great an impact or perhaps, at, you know, certainly in the same ballpark with uh, emotional uh, violence or, you know, uh, emotional manipulation and things like that that definitely fall under the same umbrella. Um, it's You don't have to hit someone to really hurt someone, obviously. And mm-hmm. I, I think that the, the the distinction between those, it's, you know, if, if a random person came up to you on the street and tried to belittle you or try to hit you or obviously you'd immediately cast them away and call them a crazy mm-hmm. person but when it comes mm-hmm. in this wrapping of a seemingly loving relationship whether it's with your parent or your partner or uh, uh, whatever else it, the dynamic might be um, we just we're not sophisticated enough emotional creatures without help and development to be able sure. to uh, put both parts under the microscope separately and see, one, that this person is not loving us by doing this, and two, that we need to extricate ourselves from that situation um, to not let this continue, uh, let it perpetuate um, because of these. But but it just, you know, much, 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 to, to say the uh, understatement of the century, century uh, much easier said than done, you know, because of all the yeah, wi- and- wiring that's in us. That's hard enough in and of itself to sort of extricate yourself from the situation and not repeat the patterns. But then we're sort of sold maybe through movies, uh, maybe through just the way people like to have magical thinking. We're sort of sold this bill of goods that you're supposed to forgive them. Yeah. And that like I'm supposed to be like, oh, well, my dad came from abuse and, and I'm supposed to have empathy for that. And it's like I can do that to a the point of having human compassion for another living creature, but not when there's a fucking boot on my neck you know like not when it's there isn't freedom for me to be who the fuck i am um well there are two different things being able to empathize for why someone abuses which we can all do if we if we care to but also understanding that it doesn't 
you know, make it okay on any level and that someone still needs to be accountable for those actions. Yeah, I think forgiveness is an unrealistic goal. I think acceptance of of this is what reality is and can you cope with it and and find out how to protect yourself, that's what the, I think, a better standard would be. Um, You know, I I don't know. I feel a little bit of... of, uh, maybe it's my Christian upbringing, but this like, like, oh, you should let it go. And it's like, well, letting it go and forgiving him are two very different things. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think it's so. a very important topic. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Um, but to counterbalance the scales, why don't we try to end on a slightly sweeter note? What do you think? Uh, I think that's a great idea, Mike. All right. We'll be right back. So we teased this earlier, but uh, the Quibi game show that we mentioned in the trade segment uh, called Nice One has comedians attempting to cleverly out-compliment one another in a showdown of sweetness and consideration. So Nathan and I thought that we might test out the premise of this game with one another. Sure. I have I have a question about the, the nature of the game. Uh, what's the point? Like, is it to to make each other break? Is it that we we can't think of anything nice to say after a certain point? I, I mean, obviously, we haven't played this. <laughs> That'd be a funny round that... if, yeah, one compliment and out. Uh, I, I wonder, <laughs> I do wonder, yeah, I, 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 obviously, a lot of it is in the execution of how it's being judged. Because it could very easily be like one of those ESPN talking head shows where there's like an arbiter sure. deciding who did a better job. Um, oh, okay. Like a... a um Sports shouting, they called it on 30 yeah, Rock. But exactly, what sports shouting. Yeah. Around but, the horn? yeah, exactly. But we don't have that third party to to be. Maybe I guess we could go to the audience at, afterwards, And uh, but we're pretty new into our relaunch of the podcast, so we might get three votes. Oh, so. did you not? You didn't see that we were number one new podcast on iTunes? Oh, my goodness. Nathan, see, I, I like to stay in the dark, not know anything about the numbers, but it's it's a delight millions, to hear. Millions we, of listeners. Yeah, we took we down. Got, ma- I got a shirt. That said, I kicked Joe Rogan's ass. It's Mar- amazing. Marin goes down. Simmons goes down. Mm-hmm. Rogan goes down. They're all below us now. It's us. So that makes sense. I couldn't come up with any compliments for them. But for you, uh-oh, who is that? Is your uh, dog trying to be involved in the competition? Yeah, she she's a good girl. Yeah. Big um, complimenter. She's, she's, uh, she has a, a war brewing with the dog across the hall. Oh, uh, maybe they'll be on Nice One, the uh, canine edition on Animal Planet. That might be. They yeah. might be. Uh, okay, so I will get, deliver the first compliment uh, in that I think you did an excellent job setting up this segment. Oh, Nathan, you are too kind. Uh, well, I, I want to say that uh, you had quite the tightrope to walk on our third segment about domestic violence, and it, it created not one moment uh, where I worried that we might get you know, uh, a lot of hate mail from listeners about how you handled it, especially, you know, a couple white men talking about domestic violence. I guess it doesn't matter that we're white, but two men, middle-aged men talking about domestic violence. I thought, sure. It was a, a I, I think our, our, our chances for SNL are still solid. <laughs> yeah. Um, we haven't ruled ourselves out yet. Uh, having listened to the show last week, I think you did an excellent job as host, uh, and that your microphone selection for this podcast is top notch. Oh, well, Nathan, I, I re-listened to the entire entirety of that episode. And here, here, if we're talking about oversharing, but this is going to turn into a compliment for you, a long-winded one. But when we were recording the podcast, I actually took umbrage with something you said and didn't say anything about it at the time, which was that uh, when we were discussing different parts of our eight-year journey uh, and when we ran into each other in L.A. that time and we had our, our difficult moment, 
uh, I took umbrage with the fact that you were basically um, uh, positioning yourself as a sort of older brother, like the older, wiser one of the two of us that was, you know, helping me through this difficult time. But when I actually listened back to it, that was not the framing device at all. In fact, you were talking about a much larger perspective about how that energy is something that you bring to many people in your life. And I can say that you have uh, always been someone that I can both look up to and see as an equal. That's a, a very younger brother comment of you. <laughs> <laughs> doing an excellent job being a younger brother. Um, thank you. Uh, I, I uh, have always thought you are a very good driver. Oh, well, that is both because... of vehicles and golf balls. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I do miss uh, hitting a few golf balls with you. I've never seen anyone hook a golf ball into the L.A. River as well as you have with panache, I will say. Like just really, DeWitt Gulch is named for a reason and it's because you populated <laughs> that poor thing with many a golf ball. But you also are uh, one of my favorite passengers I've ever had in my car and you've spent a lot of time in there and also one of my all-time favorite lunch companions as well. You, you do a very good job selecting restaurants. I have never been to a restaurant that Mike Maloney picked out that wasn't good. And similarly, very few people who can say that there, your taste in music has populated many a playlist of mine, and it can range from things I should have listened to a long time ago to bands I never would have heard of had I not met you. And uh, I'll throw in on top of that, that you're a pretty damn talented musician yourself. I remember going to see, I think it was the Grave Lights the first time, one of the bands that Nathan was in during our LA sojourn and thinking, oh, Nate says he's a drummer. I'm sure he's fine. But then seeing you live, just like wail on those skins, <laughs> it, it, it was a fun time and it really added another dimension to uh, to your creative talents. I appreciate that. You are very good at giving compliments. Um, you bear a striking resemblance to NBA legend Tony Parker. Oh, well, I, I hope I have. I wish I had his French charisma to be able to seduce teammates, <laughs> wives and girlfriends into into the sack. But sadly, uh, that, is, that is not the case. Well, uh, we know uh, that you are stopped on the regular for looking like so many celebrities. It's hard to keep track of what we've got. We've got <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman, Jim Gaffigan. Not, not as much anymore on the Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, that's a sad one, man. R.I.P. Um, but, uh, let's let's we'll dig dive in this for a second. My, my therapist talked to me when he died. Really? <laughs> was like was like yeah, I thought about you as like you're uh, a, pro a proxy for Philip Seymour Hoffman. A little point? bit, right? Because he he has experience in in films, right? So he he is you know approaches me from that's who I look like. Um, and when he died, like the nature of his his death and his his loneliness and and. Uh, things like that my therapist was compelled to mention that he thought of me well i think the, the uh, tony is, the tony parker uh comparison shows us that just because you look like someone doesn't mean that you have to have a lot in common with them in your in your everyday life so that's true although i'll use uh, you know in our meme culture there was that thing going around of twitter of um you know who are you in roles right in, in like character roles from films mm -hmm. uh and i could do it with all philip seymour hoffman characters of like my complete identity is like a little bit scotty from uh, boogie nights <laughs> sure. a little bit lester bangs from almost famous 
uh, a little bit the guy from Savages, that small movie. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's right up your alley. Yeah, no, I've seen that with, one. Yep, yeah. Lester was, Banks uh, is your older brother. Laura Linney, right? Yeah, it's Laura Linney. And Lester Banks definitely your older brother energy. Is that how you see me as sure, uh, sure, sure. That, that young teenage kid and you're this old, wise music critic? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's that extreme, but there's a lot of that teenage kid in you. And then the last person of him I like to see myself as is the, the master guy. Right, oh, that, sure. that yeah. more is the enigmatic older brother type of energy. What about um, the, the assistant in Lebowski, the complete suck dude, up? That's, that's the, the part of me I want to not admit is there. <laughs> but yes, of course, if you have a fifth frame, you've got to put Brent there. Uh, that's that's funny because uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you before you went down that road which uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman character you think you would best embody, but you you did an even better version of that. So there's another compliment for you. To to that end, I when's the last time you saw Super Troopers? I've never seen Super Troopers. Okay, um, it's okay. Uh, it's a little stoner comedy, maybe for your cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Um, but early on in it, Jim Gaffigan plays a guy they pull over. Okay. He looks so much like me that I want to like call about residuals. <laughs> like that, I'm like, when when did I film this? I know I drank a lot back then, but I don't remember being in this movie. Like same glasses I had at that age. Same like it's eerie. Uh, um, another compliment for you, uh, having been a, a kid that grew up that he was going to do one of two things. He was either going to write movies or be a sports play-by-play announcer. If I had your voice and my talents uh, of being able to call games, I would I would be Mike Breen right now. But your voice <laughs> is, is an all-timer. Uh, to, to switch things around on you in terms of the admiration, my dad's uh, degree was in uh, sports broadcasting. His aspiration was to be the sports news guy. Uh, and one of the times where I was like, oh, maybe Mike and I are going to be friends was watching you do play by play of two of our friends playing like NBA 2K6 or something <laughs> like that. Quick uh, anecdote on that. Whenever I would play with my brother or my best friend, John Madden or something, I you knew I was winning if I was doing play by play of the games, which they both pointed <laughs> out to me. And I was very quiet and ready to throw the controller across the room when I was losing. So. I always enjoyed watching people play video games more than playing them. I, I did a lot, too. You learn a lot about somebody by watching them try to beat, you know, the third world of Mario. All right. Well, I feel like I've been thoroughly out complimented here. That is my last compliment to you <laughs> that you have, you have won this game. Well, from, um, the bo- from the bottom of my heart, buddy, I, I love you. And I wouldn't rather host a podcast with anybody else. That's right. I love you, too. I hope you don't burn down. Um, we can mail you some snow uh, if you think that'll help. Yeah, if we don't have power, we can't do this podcast, and that's the only reason I really care about my power from this point forward. But hopefully it won't burn, and uh, hopefully we'll be back next week. All right, man. I love you, buddy. All right. Talk to you later, bud. Love you.